The Future Works, a podcast for workforce professionals, hosted by me, Melinda Mack. The size of the tsunami is much larger than what we thought was the worst thing we were going to see in our lifetime, which is what we saw in 2008 and nine. Students have really appreciated the flip to remote service delivery in a way we never could have anticipated, that I don't know that they'll necessarily want to come back to campus. And there'll be segments in, in, of, of our market sectors that will go away. We're in the first week of May, and as much of the country is starting to talk about when we'll go back to normal, the workforce field is readying to respond to the millions of Americans who are going to need to get back to work. Depending on where you live in New York State, we're starting to see promising signs that the curve is flattening and COVID-19 hospitalizations are starting to go down. But too many people are still dying every day. School has officially been closed for the rest of the year, and New York's governor, Andrew Cuomo, has required anyone who's out in public unable to be six feet apart to wear a face covering. As we all know by now, this is not your typical economic downturn. It certainly doesn't take an economist to understand that this particular crisis is unique. If you've gone to the grocery store or out to a park, you know that this recovery certainly feels different, definitely looks different. Life is really different. In New York, last week's numbers have us around 1.6 million people on unemployment insurance, with around 750,000 people in New York City alone. New numbers will be out on Friday this week, and it's likely that even more people will be on unemployment insurance as the state continues to process its high number of claims in the backlog. They've announced recently that they've paid out a staggering $5.8 billion in claims, which is way more than the GDP of some countries. It's just crazy how much money is going out the door to just keep families afloat. As we start to plan and gather workforce intelligence, we start to design programming as we're really working to respond to this particular unique instance of mass layoff, we wanted to make sure we were bringing together three nationally recognized leaders to share what they're thinking. How are they approaching this? What are they considering as they're thinking about their own responses? So for this episode of The Future Works, we'll be joined by Dr. Ann Kress, president of Northern Virginia Community College, Plinio Ayala, President and CEO of Perscolis, a tech training provider operating in 13 states, and Michael Gritton, Executive Director of Kentuckiana Works, the local workforce board in Louisville, Kentucky, and a National Fund for Workforce Solutions site. They sat down with me earlier this week for a roundtable discussion, and we're so excited to bring it to you today. We hope you enjoy the show. So today for our Future Works podcast, we're so excited to have three national experts and leaders joining us today. Um, I've known many of these folks for a long time, and I'm always deeply impressed by their forward thinking, um, but also how they see challenges like this as a huge opportunity to do something new, different, and better on behalf of the workforce system. Um, So with that, I'm actually going to have each person introduce themselves and share a bit about their background. And we've got some great questions and a conversation scheduled for you today. So Dr. Kress, would you like to go first? Sure. Well, and thank you so much for this opportunity to engage with you and, and these incredible thinkers. Uh, so I'm Ann Kress. I'm the president of Northern Virginia Community College. We have six campuses spread out across Northern Virginia, right across the river from D.C. Um, 
a little bit more than 70,000 credit students. If you add in our non-credit workforce students, we're over 90,000 students. So a, a fairly large institution. And just, um, just a fun note that, that I'll share is that I started as NOVA's president on January 6th. So this was a whole new environment for me. And then to um, be sort of addressing all of the challenges that we're facing right now, um, literally within a month and a half of when I started was, um, was pretty remarkable. My name is Plenio Ayala and I'm president and CEO of a national IT workforce development organization called Prescolis. We are in, in 12 locations across the country uh, with our largest operation headquarters um, in, in New York. Um, you know, we um, have been at the forefront of trying to uh, identify amazing talent in communities that are often overlooked and providing them meaningful training in partnership with our employer community to produce talent that, that our employer partners can, can consume. I've been at the organization for 22 years now. Um, it's been a very interesting um, 22 years, and, and frankly, it's been a privilege to, to have had the opportunity to lead this organization. Well, and I think what's interesting about those 22 years is just how much has changed in the city and how many crises you've sort of gone, you've gone through. Um, if, you know, go back to 22 years from now, you're there right around 9-11, right? So it'll be interesting to hear your feedback around what that, what that looks like. Michael Gritton, Executive Director of Kentucky and Works, the Workforce Development Board in Louisville, Kentucky, and the six counties around it. Uh, a yearly budget of about 13 million, about half we owe, uh, half other sources. We uh, scramble for anything we can get from the city. The, I work for Mayor Greg Fisher, and he's a visionary around summer jobs. So we do summer jobs. We're doing TANF programming. We're doing work with our K-12 system around high school reform and academies. And so there are lots of different topics we could talk about. But for today's purposes, we're the workforce board in Louisville. Um, and dealing with the world we did not anticipate 60 days ago. So I'm sure we'll have more to talk about. Yeah, so let's start there. I mean, just give us a sense. You know, we're coming from, in some ways, New York and a, a lot of different places from Plenio's perspective, Virginia, Kentucky. What is your world right now? What has changed? What's, what do you, have you seen sort of shift in terms of everything that's happening within your space? I think I would start with saying how um, pleasantly surprised I have been that an academic institution can shift so quickly to delivering um, services and courses remotely. I've really been um, so impressed and humbled by the work of our faculty and staff, but I'll even go further and say I have just been awed by the dedication of our students. Um, this is an area that was booming, right? Northern Virginia is, is soon to be home to Amazon HQ2, which is being built not too far from where I'm talking to you in the apartment uh, living room. And, uh, and, and so this has been a, really a growth area. Two thirds of our students were working somewhere in the community, most of them in hospitality and in retail and, and overnight as the environment really shifted and as uh, Governor Northam put forward the stay at home orders, most of those jobs disappeared. But somehow our students have persisted. They persisted in career and technical education programs as well. And we can talk about how amazing so many of our industry partners and accrediting groups have been in shifting to simulation and online instruction so that our students could continue. But I mean, otherwise, the world would have come to a standstill. But folks are moving forward. Um, students have goals to reach and nobody's there to help them. 
you know, Michael, I'd be interested in your perspective. You know, obviously we're like the East Coaster states, some of us here, right? Like what, what has been different in, in Kentucky? So I doubt much has been different. I mean, look, plenty of now we're talking, you know, you've got 300,000 cases in the New York metro area. We have 5,000 in the Commonwealth of Kentucky. So the scale of what is happening has not hit us yet. But still, our governor, uh, Andy Bashir got out in front of this early in mid-March. And uh, so the shift for us was partly the shift that all workforce boards and their service delivery partners have been doing around the country to a model where you're working from home and trying to figure out how to serve customers. In a relatively poor state like Kentucky, that often means you're trying to serve customers who don't have computers, don't have cell phones, don't have Wi-Fi access. So that is a real challenge. And then the other thing is, at least in the short term, all of the tidal wave around services has been around unemployment insurance. And you and your listeners know workforce boards in general don't do unemployment. That's a state function. So we and lots of people, I'm sure, around the country have been scrambling to try to figure out, is there some way we can help our state partners? But without having access to the system, you can't help much. You end up being a person taking a phone call and not helping them, which is not particularly helpful. So we're expecting the wave to shift soon to something that looks more like traditional workforce work. But so far, it's been sort of crisis around unemployment insurance for the most part. Yeah, I think, you know, lucky for us, late last year, we began to invest in our capacity to do virtual training and converted a lot of our coursework to online, trained staff, and began to play around with some models early this year, never thinking, right, that we would need to accelerate it as, as we did in March. But we were able to flip the switch and convert 521 students to an online training uh, modality. And I was just panicked thinking, oh my goodness, we're gonna lose a bunch of folks, they're not ready for this. And in fact, we've only lost 23 people. Um, and we're graduating uh, folks and they're still getting jobs. So I'm mildly encouraged that we're doing something right. And clearly, you know, three, four months from now, five months from now, we'll be much better than we were two months ago. Um, and I think it's created a real opportunity for us to think about what this could look like going forward. But, you know, it wasn't without pain, Melinda. I think, you know, what's, what's reared its ugly head again is this issue of the digital divide, one that this nation thought had under control. And that really isn't the case. Um, you know, it, it took us um, a significant amount of time, energy, and, and money to be able to deploy equipment out to folks. Um, uh, Wi-Fi capability out to folks um, so that they can take um, these courses. I think the definition of the digital divide is very different now, right? It's not just having a computer at home. It's having the right computer and the right broadband to be able to, to stream and do all the things that are expected now. So we've been dealing with that. And as we bring on new online courses in the next couple of months, um, we need to address that, which is something we didn't anticipate, obviously, going into, into this situation back in March. Yeah, it's interesting, Plenty, as you're describing this, you know, there's, I'm looking at all of you, you know, we're on a Zoom call, right? Like, we've, we've lived through a lot of these crises that have been unique and different. This one is particularly unique and different. Um, and in some ways, I think we, we have some foresight into what we can expect and what some of the challenges are that are down the road. But all these unique things keep popping up that are just you know, related to this particular crisis. Um, let's talk through some of those. What are some of these blind spots that you had or ways you're taking learning from 9-11 from the last the last uh, fiscal crisis in our country 
um, and applying them to how you're delivering services better and differently for job seekers, students, for businesses. Well, I'll jump, this is Anne, I'll jump in just to follow up on Plenio's comments. I think we hold assumptions about our students' access to technology that we found are not true. Uh, again, we live in a high-tech part of, of the state. Uh, large parts of Virginia are rural. Uh, Northern Virginia is not, really. Um, but what we found is that, to the point, students may have computers, but they don't run the software we would expect them to. They don't have webcams. Um, they may have a laptop, but they don't have access to Wi-Fi. And we turned our parking lots into Wi-Fi hotspots for students just to pull in and, and do their work from their cars. We um, scooped up all of the laptops that we had in our libraries and in offices and re-imaged them and handed them out to students because maybe they had a hand-me-down laptop that didn't run anything. Um, they were just using it to word process. So I think, you know, we've really now realized we need to be very clear with students about technology expectations. And then I'll just end with this comment too. What we've discovered is that students have really appreciated the flip to remote service delivery in a way we never could have anticipated. That I don't know that they'll necessarily want to come back to campus for many of these services to be delivered because they're used to now being able to email someone, being able to submit a form, being able to do online chat. You know, traffic in Northern Virginia, um, much like traffic in New York when we're not in a terrible situation like this is is awful. It could take you an hour to get from place to place. Why would we make students do that when we come back from this experience? Linda, I will say just with a different perspective, I, I, I'm sure what Dr. Kress is describing is true and what Plenio is describing, we can talk more about too, the need for the digital divide. I was just, what we learned after the 08-09 recession is that our construction industry, even though it recovered, has never gotten back to the number of jobs in our, re in our 12 county area that it had before 2008. Our manufacturing sector, which is relatively strong, we have two Ford Motor Company plants, a General Electric GE appliances plant here, um, and lots of suppliers in this network, sort of the auto belt that we're in. Um, it took them almost five years for their employment levels to regain the levels they were at in 2008. And everything I'm reading about what we're going through now makes it look like the size of the tsunami is much larger than what we thought was the worst thing we were going to see in our lifetime, which is what we saw in 2008 and 9. So the real thing we're starting to worry about and think about is if it took 10 years for the construction industry to recover after 2009, and we know that the, like, the, the demand for construction workers may be lower than that in the next two years, what is the point of training construction workers unless there's some kind of big federal investment around infrastructure that would create a demand for construction workers? If manufacturing took four or five years to recover, and that's in what we thought was the worst recession, and now we're looking at something that may have unemployment rates twice as large, and if the CBO projections are right, we're still going to be looking at the worst we saw in 2009 at 9.5% 16 months from now. If we're going to be looking at that 16 months from now, how many manufacturing companies are going to be asking Kentucky University for manufacturing workers? Not as many as I would like. And so that becomes a real existential problem for all workforce boards and professionals around the country. What exactly are we supposed to train people for? Our bread and butter is we know where the jobs are and we know what you need to get there. Let us help you. But this is the size that the size of this demand shock is so large that I and, and again, 
in 2008, when the Wall Street Journal was writing articles about the fears that we could plunge into a depression because of the bank uh, issues, I thought we had solved those kinds of problems and we're never going to see them again. And all of a sudden, literally in 60 days, we're seeing something that may be twice or three times as large as that. Um, and that is not a world that any of us have really lived in before. And so we're just we're going to have to think a bigger and differently, I think, than just, oh, give me some additional WIOA money. Let me train a few more construction workers. I'm sure that market will come back someday. I think it's going to be a much bigger problem than that. The size is just so big. I think that, I mean, just the fact that we're seeing, we expect 2 million people to be on unemployment insurance in New York State alone. It's just huge. And to your point, the fact that many, many of the workers who are already struggling to get by and keep a job and keep a job intact, like those folks' ability to return back to work feels really, really daunting at this point. And yeah. so it just, to your point, it's, I think, as you said, it, it's the stress is like three times what it was 08, 09. But yet the money right. has not come yet either. We have no money to do any of this stuff or respond in a meaningful way. Well, just one yeah. other point, I don't want to talk too much, but all I would say is what we also saw after 2009 is that to the extent that the economy did create jobs over time, in our market and across the country, a lot of the jobs that were created were fairly low wage jobs that really created a struggle for people. So the good news is to the extent that they were hotels and restaurants and bars and retail, you heard Dr. Kress describe many of her students were using those jobs as a way of paying for staying in school. So that's the good news. Well, the bad news, but, but the bad news at the time was many of those jobs don't pay well, the hours are irregular. And so many people were struggling and that made income inequality get worse. The challenge we have now, think about Louisville, 95% of all the bourbon in the world is made in Kentucky. So we have made this big bet over the last five years around building a tourism economy based on people coming in and visiting all of our bourbon distilleries. We built 25 hotels in Louisville in the last five years. Now many of those hotels, which are owned by small builders and developers, are threatened with, where's the Kentucky Derby crowd I planned on? Where are all the, we had 1.1 million bourbon tourists last year to Louisville. How many of them are going to come in the next year? And if only 100,000 come, how am I going to keep my hotel open? And then the cascade of those jobs not being there is, a, is still another thing that's worrying, right? Because at least we had places to put people before, but I'm not sure where we're going to put them now. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, and Michael, you're spot on. I mean, this is unlike two, two, 2001, right, and, and 2008. This is very, very different. Um, I've never seen anything like this. The way we live, the way we work, the way we entertain ourselves going forward has changed completely. The way we, we travel will change completely. Um, and there'll be segments in, in, of, of our market sectors that will go away. The, you know, the, the world of big box retail stores, that's probably not going to come back. Um, however, with that said, there'll be new jobs will be created, a lot of technology jobs, right? This whole virtual piece will require many more folks with cyber security skills. There'll be more need for coding. Um, skills to create the next app that can do the most sophisticated contact tracing ever. Um, I mean, there'll they'll be new jobs created, but the entry points for those jobs, as Michael was indicating, um, will be much, much higher. And so we need to be able to figure out ways of bridging folks into those jobs um, while also recognizing that they need to have some money in their pocket while they're doing it. So, you know, we, 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 
these are challenges that we've never faced before. I think there are a multiple, a multiple of, of a multitude of things that we need to do at the same time. Unlike um, 2001, 2008, where we could do this linearly, um, it can happen here. Um, I think we need to uh, be concurrent with a lot of um, different remedies to try and fix this problem. It's a huge so let's talk about some of those remedies. I'm sure if you're like me, you're like up in the middle of the night going, what if we did this? Or what if we tried this? Or what if we could get the money to be flexible in a way that would let us do this? Um, what are you thinking about? What are some of your immediate solutions and some of the long-term shifts you're thinking that are real opportunities to change, again, how we deliver services, but outcomes for the people that you're serving? Um, Dr. Kress, we'll go with you. It seems like our round robin, we'll start with you. <laughs> So, so I want to pick up where Plenio left off because obviously I'm looking at Virginia's unemployment um, data right below the numbers constantly. And what we see is that there are certainly job losses in some sectors that are far smaller than we see in retail and hospitality and what's driving those huge numbers that we see nationally. So, for example, the trades. Right, are still going strong. Um, when you look at IT, when you look at healthcare, um, for obvious reasons, right, those are still very strong sectors. Um, but what we see is that we'll have a lot of folks who are cascading to the points raised earlier out of certain industries and are looking for a home and others. And so I do think the real opportunity is doing some skill scraping, looking at the transferable skills that somebody had in industry X and moving them over to industry Y, helping them leverage that previous learning so that they're not starting at zero, that they can start, you know, halfway down the field. I think looking at those shorter term certificates and Virginia's done a great job of that for years with fast forward. And <clears throat> as we went into this year, we had another plan for short term certificates around helping people get jobs and give back. And I think those are all incredible opportunities, but they will call upon us as educational institutions to rethink how do we deliver our courses? How do we deliver our services? That it needs to be in a very short burst that connects folks to plenty of comments directly to employment as quickly as possible to put that money in their pocket. And I do think you'll see um, a burst of uh, interest in apprenticeships, much more so building that wave that was there before the pandemic. I also think you'll see more interest in co-ops, um, those activities that connect students to employment while they're also learning. Um, I think the growth there is gonna be enormous. It's just interesting to hear, like, you know, work for it. We always have been demand-driven, but the fact now that the demand is going to come from the supply side around the shifts in the way that they want to be receiving services, um, and even some of the virtual services and what you can actually do before you would even come in person to a career center or a campus. These are the things I want to be able to do from my phone or my laptop to be able to make sure that I'm checking off the boxes I need to receive what I need before I arrive. It's just, it's just interesting to think about this in a different kind of demand wave. Uh, Michael, I see you itching to, to share what you're thinking about in conjecture. Well, I still, the, the last day that our biggest career center, the busiest one in the state of Kentucky was open, I remember being over because we had a huge number of customers that were there and many of them were explaining that they were there because they didn't have a computer at home, didn't know how to work a computer, didn't have Wi-Fi access anywhere. So, uh, and again, this is Plenio's expertise more than mine, but what I would say is I think we're going to have to think big about digital literacy and do it in a campaign sort of way, which is not typically how the federal government funds workforce boards or other places to do stuff. They want us to do registrations one by one, 
And I don't think that's going to meet the scale of the challenge that we're facing. The other thing is, I think policymakers are going to have to experiment. Melinda, you know from the work you did in New York City, a lot of times people wait while they're on unemployment insurance, and only when they get close to their UI running out do they then suddenly have the idea, you know what, maybe I need to go into a training program, and by then they're really stuck. It may turn out that this go-round, we're going to have to make people's UI extensions dependent on being registered and in good standing in a program like at Northern Virginia Community College that's training you for what we expect to be an in-demand occupation. Because then you have a way of addressing what Plenio described, which is making sure people can keep a roof over their head while they're improving their skills to get the job we expect to be there in six to 24 months. If we don't do that, what I worry about is we're then stuck trying to train people in a very short-term way because they typically come to workforce centers or career centers knowing that their UI is gonna run out in four to six weeks, what can you do for me? We can get them into things like manufacturing or construction relatively or CNAs and certified nursing assistants and things like that. But you would like to have a broader portfolio to offer them and also know that they can keep a roof over their head while they're doing it. And again, if the retail restaurant hotel industry doesn't bounce back right away, it's going to be harder for them to do what we typically ask them to do, which is take a part-time job while you're in school. So that's those are a couple of things that I've been thinking about. It's interesting. I think the to your point, bringing back tools like 599, which again, if you're a workforce junkie, you know, it's like the unemployment insurance that allows you to work and go to school. Um, I think there's tools in the toolbox, but they need to be modernized to your point, recognizing mm -hmm. that this is a unique mm -hmm. pandemic that requires people to have income in order to be able to survive. But also in looking at the labor market data, like the people who are being laid off this time are not the bankers. <laughs> They're not in finance. They don't have a savings. Right. And so the That's struggle right. is so much bigger in terms of the gap between getting someone to stability and then able to participate effectively and then into stable employment. And so it's, it's interesting yeah. to hear you guys thinking about it that way. Uh, Plenio, I'm sure you have thoughts on this as well. Yeah, I think all, all the comments are spot on. And I think it leads us to have to grapple with the fact that these programs have to be a lot longer than we had anticipated, right? That there needs mm -hmm. to be um, a much longer runway to get folks um, into these new jobs in six, 12 months. Um, and as Michael was mentioning, be able to provide that safety net while they're doing that. Um, you know, subsidized wage programs, we probably need to look at stuff like that. Um, we've got to figure out a way of not hurting people um, during this time when they did nothing wrong. Um, they're in a situation that without support um, in some way, shape, or form, they're not going to be able to participate in a program that's going to get them into an eventual job. Um, and, and there are no other options, right? Um, the job that they would have gotten in a retail store or maybe in a restaurant may not be there anymore. So I think it's a holistic approach that we have to look at um, and a much longer engagement than we've ever thought we needed in the past. Mm -hmm. So I would be remiss, of course, if I didn't ask about businesses, too. Go ahead, Dan. I'm sorry. Oh, I just wanted to jump in and, and circle back to, I think, something we've sort of had a little bit of underlying discussion throughout our conversation, and it goes back to that notion of Wi-Fi access and to broadband access. And I think one of the things we should all walk away from this experience with is the notion that broadband is a utility. 
at this point. It's like water, it's like electricity. And we wouldn't say, well, some people in our country don't get water and electricity. Um, we would say, this is something that everyone needs to have. That has been a huge challenge, surprising challenge for some of our students um, in an area where, you know, again, Amazon's supposed to locate. You think everyone, it comes out of the faucet like water, but it doesn't for so many of our students. And I do think that will be a lesson we all need to walk away from this with. Yeah, we've been calling in New York, um, this is the new work boots, right? Mm -hmm. Like we, we used to be able to buy you tools, we could buy it, and these are the work boots that you got, and we, we knew this yeah. was something, an investment you needed. We haven't thought about technology like work boots. Um, yep. And I think there's something about that that needs to get through to policymakers. It's, you know, we're not buying expensive devices, we're buying the mm -hmm. actual tools you need to be successful in education and on the job. Um, so to circle back around businesses, um, you know, we talked a lot about the job seeker side and folks who are out of work. Um, where's their unique opportunities to serve employers? Well, so I'll jump in and, and I'll say, you know, this is, it's a great question. We're starting to have those discussions with some of our major employers in our region, um, really saying, you know, the route to recovery goes through NOVA. We're here. We're ready to train your workforce. We do have that capacity. Um, what do you look at your future like? And to some of the points um, that we've already talked about, it may be component skill sets that now that folks have had to work at a distance, you're recognizing, ooh, we never realized this was a deficit in our workforce. We need to fill this right now. So talking about short-term things, but then I also think, again, looking at what's gonna rebuild the country. And, and I, you know, if I were to take out my little crystal ball, I wouldn't be surprised if we don't see some major infrastructure projects. And again, we know that there was already a shortage of workers in the trade. So having that pathway for individuals, certainly this move that we've all made has shown us how critical it is to have, you know, those cloud computing cybersecurity positions. Again, before the pandemic in the state of Virginia, I think there were more than 60,000 positions in cloud computing that have been open for more than four months. Right, that's a pre-existing shortage that isn't getting any smaller. Um, so the more that we can um, partner with great community agencies like our workforce boards and others to identify individuals who have that um, capacity to really retrain for an entirely new sector, I think that's our obligation to partner with businesses and with community-based organizations. Michael Erplinio. Well, Melinda, this isn't going to surprise you, but what I would say is, so you heard Dr. Kress and Plenio both talk about sectors like IT, healthcare. We know those things aren't going away, and if there's a blip, it's going to be very short term. Um, but we also know Plenio was making this point before, in order to get jobs in those fields, you typically need more than you need to be a bartender, or you need more than you need to be the person working at the front desk of a hotel. And so the country is going to face this very real challenge about how do you help people get from where they are to where we know we're going to need them to be. And at the federal level, there's been a real hesitance to try to spend the money that is required to help people move from one of those places to the other. Uh, my hope is this crisis is going to be so, I don't hope it's so large, but my hope is policymakers realize that it's so large, it's going to take them doing more than they've done in the past in order to do that. Um, the other thing we know is if there's a big infrastructure bill, we can all train more construction workers. The trades are already looking for people and, are, and would certainly love to take more if they had more work to do, right? And in a place like Louisville, we've had a big surge in business service companies over the last five to 10 years, finance, accounting, you know, legal services, uh, back office kinds of things. People can build good middle-class careers in those kinds of fields, 
But again, as Plenio knows, because he's the expert, you're, you're going to need more tech knowledge and savvy to function in those kinds of jobs just to get in them, much less to flourish in them. Um, and yet a, a workforce system or a federal system that thinks about investing in people one at a time instead of investing across a community where you're trying to lift up technology skills in a totally different way is something that I think we're going to have to think harder about because doing this one by one looks to me like a very tough, tough nut to crack. Plenio? Yeah, I, I think you're spot on, Michael. I, I worry about the recovery not being, well, it almost never is, right, uh, equal for all communities. Um, and I think I'm trying to figure out in this new world that's emerging where employers will have the upper hand, right? There's going to be a huge supply for them to choose from. How do I eliminate the barriers for our students? And the barriers are very different um, pre-COVID than they are now, right? This issue of the digital divide is real, right? The, the idea of remote work, that's never going to go away. The expectations from employers is that people are going to be able to do this and do this effectively and efficiently from day one. And so we're trying to figure out ways of beginning to incorporate that in all of our coursework, ensuring that the equipment is available. I love your comment, Melinda, about these in the technology space. The computer is, is our work boot, right? Um, and so we've got to figure that out and figure it out fast because, you know, typically poor people end up at the back of the job line during tough times. The line is huge now. And we've got to figure out how to bridge that line for those individuals. Otherwise, the recovery for those communities will be very, very long. Before the crisis, New York's economy was thriving by all standard measures. I was interested, and so I did some math this morning, and in New York's eight key sectors, which made up about 7.8 million of the jobs, again, there's 10 million jobs across the state, and this was 7.8 million of those jobs, these sectors were attributed to accommodations and food service, construction, government, educational services, healthcare, manufacturing and professional services, as well as retail. Of those sectors, again, they made up 7.8 million jobs in New York last year. They've already lost around 1,040,000 jobs. It wouldn't surprise you to know that retail, accommodations, and food service have definitely taken huge hits, as well as construction, as well as healthcare. Um, and at this point, it makes up more than half of the unemployment numbers that we're seeing come in. When the economy recovered after the 2008-2009 financial crisis, it definitely changed. We didn't have the same economy 10 years later. Across New York, we saw a surge in low-wage work that was dominating the labor market. Some of the analysis we've done previously demonstrated that nine out of the 10 of the 10 largest occupational groups, meaning categories or groups of jobs, paid less than $32,000 a year. We're talking 1.8 million New Yorkers who went to work every day as waiters and waitresses, in retail sales, doing food prep, people who are cashiers or personal care attendants taking care of the sick and elderly. When we look at those unemployment insurance numbers, those are the people who are losing their jobs. Those are the people who are now out of work. What we don't know yet is when or if any of these jobs will recover. 
For the workforce sector, we absolutely bristle when we hear people say that our field trains people and then prays that the jobs will be there. What non-workforce folks are missing is that we're working with the best information available to us right now to make bets on how the economy is going to pan out so we can invest in people so that they can get good or better jobs. We want people to be better off than they were before they've lost their job. Thank you for joining the Future Works podcast. You can download previous episodes at www.niatep.org.